Thanks for tuning in to McNamara on Money, a podcast about all things financial. On this show, we talk about investments and investment performance. In our practice, we give financial advice to our clients. We know their financial situation in detail before doing so. That's not the case with callers we may speak to on this show. We can't give truly meaningful financial advice because we don't know the detailed financial situation of the caller. Any suggestions we make to callers are generic in nature and meant to steer a caller in the right direction. Listeners to this podcast need to check with their own financial professionals before implementing any suggestions that we may make. This is McNamara on Money, and we're talking legal stuff today. That's our subject, folks. Attorney Brian Fecto from Delaney and Muncie in Plymouth, Massachusetts, is our guest this morning, and he's rolling along here, folks. And uh, by the way, Brian, very quickly, in case somebody wants to call this show or call, talk to you but are shy about calling, what's the number they can get a hold of you? Sure. I can be reached at 508-746-2200. Also, you can check out our website, delaney-muncie.com, where it has biographical information information on me and in other ways to reach me. You're the good looking young guy on the website. Is that how it works? Not the youngest anymore, (laughs) but one of the younger ones. All right. We have a caller, folks. It's Tom from Kingston. Tom, are you still there? I am still here. All right. Brian is ready to dispense some wisdom here. What's your next question? Two more questions. The first one is I have a checking account or bank account, uh, the local bank. Is it better off or is there a difference between a POD and a beneficiary? No, those are interchangeable terms. So POD, pay on death, usually ends with beneficiary. So payable on death beneficiaries or transfer on death, TOD, which is what Mike said he has in his office. Same thing, Tom. Same thing. And the last thing thing is, if I have an IRA and I make my wife the beneficiary of that, does it stay as an IRA or does she have to cash it in? Or what is the procedure once... I pass away, and it's now in her name. Sure. I'll, she she I'll, goes on a big vacation, Tom. That's the procedure. You <laughs> <laughs> Brian will answer that, then I'll answer that. Go. Yeah, so as a spouse, she can keep that in an, in the IRA form, okay? And depending on her age, may be able to delay the need for distributions for quite some time. Mike can talk about this a little bit more, but when a non-spouse inherits an IRA under the law as it is now, now, they have 10 years to take that money out of the IRA and pay taxes as they do take money out. A spouse is not subject to those rules, and it will be based on her age when she has to start pulling money out of that account. Yeah, okay, t- Tom, the only earlier I'd ask, add to that is that if if you're already in required minimum distributions, and you, th- then your wife steps into ownership of that account, but the distributions at your rate have to continue. Okay, if you're not taking required minimum distributions, she steps into 100% ownership on that, can take the vacation, can take all of it, some of it, income, leave it, get brave, do whatever sort of a thing. So those are the options. Any questions? And she would still be required to pay taxes on the if it's a traditional IRA. Only when you take the money out. When she takes the money out or right. under mandatory distribution. That's correct. And now oh. the age, they change it every week lately, but the age is 73. Okay, so, so, 73? Yeah, 73. They bumped it up. I missed all three of those age changes. I, I, can, I can't believe yeah. it. I'm not happy about this. But anyway, yeah. So for folks born, I forget the year now because they change it every week, but basically for most folks listening to us who aren't retired, in, in the year that you turn age 73, you must begin taking withdrawals out of your IRA. It's not a 
as scary as it sounds, it starts off somewhere between three and a half and four percent. And by the way, when you're 100, they only make you take 15 percent. So that's how it works. So it's not the end of the world, but they want some tax revenue, Tom. They need the money. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Brian, the last thing, hopefully it's the last thing. What considers to be an estate? In other words, what assets should I consider as part of my of your estate? Or yeah, in other words, I don't have an estate right now, and I don't have a trust. I yep. have a checking account and an IRA and certain things, and I already mm-hmm. have like beneficiaries. Sure, is that considered my estate? So your probate estate, okay, your probate estate would consist of any assets that you die with in your individual name, okay? So back when we were talking about the credit card before the break, you you remember I say the credit card company can only come after your probate estate. So if I have all my accounts joint or with beneficiaries named, I may have no probate estate, right? So even if you have a will, I might just be sending it to the probate court and saying, put this on file, but Tom doesn't have any probate assets, so we really don't need you to do anything. Nice, okay. Okay, now... We'll talk about this later in the show, but for estate sure. for estate tax purposes, the IRS and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts would not take the same position. So for determining whether or not estate taxes are owed, that your taxable estate would will probably include all your stuff, not just the probate assets, Great. but we'll get into that later. Yeah, Tom, the short story is if you've got an account, not a house, but if you've got a financial account, money or investments or an mm-hmm. insurance company or an annuity, mm-hmm. if there's beneficiaries on it, it ain't in your probate estate. That's the short awesome. story. Okay. Tom, anyway, thank you so much. Been have a, a pleasure. Hang in there, Tom. Thanks, and, uh, Tom. Thank have, you. A, have a good birthday party with that grandkid, okay? You got it. All right. <laughs> Take care. Take care. All righty. They're coming out of the woodwork today. Let's go to the Jerry from Duxbury this morning. Good morning, Jerry. How are you today? Hey, I'm offended. I'm not in the woodwork. (laughs) (laughs) You're probably not out in the garden either today, right? (laughs) No, you're not out on the boat either. No, I'm wintering in Marshville this year, and I'm not happy about that. But anyway, (laughs) moving right along. What's going on? Okay, hey, I have um, five or six questions, actually. All right. I'll try to be quick. Take your time. We're in a hurry. If I can read my own handwriting. Oh, your guest, Brian, mentioned that. Let me just preface this. My sister has my power of attorney and is also my named executor. Okay. Okay. Now, your guest, Brian, mentioned that upon a person's death, the power of attorney is no longer in effect. So my question is, if the power of attorney is no longer in effect, how does she as the executor settle my bills if she can no longer write my checks? So she would not be writing them as the power of, uh, under the power of attorney anymore, Jerry. She would have to get appointed as executor or personal representative. So she basically needs to change hats, okay? While you're alive, she can use the power of attorney as attorney, in fact. And after your death, she would go through a process with the probate court to be named as your executor or personal representative, and then she would have the power to, to write checks and settle your affairs under that title. A seamless transition. Okay. Not quite uh, seamless. Well, almost. Almost. Uh, yeah. the, the next question is, you mentioned early in the presentation that the person who does this 
it can be time consuming and they wish they weren't named as the executor and so forth. Yeah, we're so, sticking by that, Jerry. Okay. <laughs> so my question is, is, is there normally a provision somewhere in the paperwork that this person gets reimbursed or, or paid or... Great question. Yes, good question, Jerry. In my documents, I do include a provision that the personal representative or the attorney, in fact, is certainly entitled to reimbursement for out-of-pocket expenses and for to a reasonable compensation for the hours they spend taking care of your matters. Now, I find oftentimes that in family situations, that fee is not taken. Usually the expense yeah. reimbursement is, but most people say, look, it was my brother. I'm not going to take a fee. Maybe I'm receiving something from the estate anyway, so I'm happy. But in cases where... Um, a fee is going to be taken. Would instruct your sister to you know, keep reasonable records as to the amount of time she's spending. We'll apply that against an hourly rate and we'll come up with a fee that, that the court and the other beneficiaries couldn't have a problem with. Yeah, yeah, Jerry, to your point, this probably doesn't apply to your sister. If you're a personal representative, your only surviving niece that's 28 years old and she has a job, th- there might be some significant time that takes away from her ability to earn a living given right. the circumstances. And that would certainly mean it's fair and reasonable to do the fee on that situation. Question? Okay. okay. Next, all my investment accounts are basically with one large investment firm. And all those accounts, and even my bank accounts, they're all transfer on death. So my question, Mike, this is more in your arena. It's my understanding that, let's say mutual fund gets transferred on death. The kids inherit that as an adjusted cost basis? That's correct. And let's have let's have Brian do a quick definition of that. No, don't get too legal on me, Brian. Sure. Okay, go for it. Okay. Sure, but I think what you're getting at, Jerry, is that they will receive a step up in basis for capital gains tax purposes. Meaning, yes, exactly. Meaning, exactly. yeah, if they sell these investments six months after your death, they don't have to go back to what you paid for it, but their basis will be what those assets were worth on your date of death. So the capital gains spread should be much smaller and thereby the capital gains tax smaller. So that's a good benefit in the tax system right now. Is so far. So far, it's who knows if it will change, but as of right now, that step up in basis is pretty powerful. Okay, let's talk about I only have two more. One thing that's not good in the present tax system, Massachusetts has a very low limit for uh, the death tax. <laughs> Correct. Do you see that changing with the new governor? Are, are there things that can be done to get around it? <laughs> Jerry, you're on a roll here. We were going to talk about this. That. Is this good. is I, a perfect segue. I, I, have okay. a, I have a document in front of me, which is the governor's proposal to change the Massachusetts yes. estate tax. By the way, t- take a minute to define it for our listening audience. I will. Okay. So that the Massachusetts estate tax, there's a federal estate tax too, but the federal government has raised the exemption level to $12.9 million per person presently. So very few people, and for a married couple, that can be doubled up to what, almost $26 million. So you have to be in pretty rarefied air to have a federal estate tax issue. Massachusetts, like you said, is one of the 12 states, I believe, it, we might be the 13th, that has a state estate tax. And we have the lowest threshold in the country of a million dollars. And we have the only system in the country that once you're $1 over that million, they go back to dollar one and tax the entire estate. So 
Massachusetts. Do an example. Just yeah, do an example. If you died, just to give you an idea of the tax, too, if you were to die with one million fifty thousand dollars, okay, the tax on that that would come off the top to be paid by your beneficiaries and heirs before they re- received anything would be about twenty one thousand dollars. Okay, so that's not a very high rate, but it's still a big check to write. Okay, and I've had situations where, and I was talking to Mike about this, I had a situation where a gentleman had about that amount and shortly before he passed away, I said, you might want to think about starting to do some gifting, some annual exclusion gifting to try to get under that million dollar number because if you're $1 over it, your kids are going to get hit with that tax. So right now we have that million dollar and we have the cliff. So some people think, oh, I'll only be taxed on the amount over a million. That's not correct. You're taxed on the full amount. Yeah, and if you own an $800,000 home, you don't have to have too much money to be in that department, right? You don't because the taxable <laughs> estate, talked about the probate estate with the Tom, the taxable estate really includes everything. <laughs> of course. R- real estate, <laughs> IRAs, and they don't care that the IRA is going to be subject to income tax. The whole balance will be subject to estate tax. Life insurance policies in most cases, really anything that you have control over or you had control <clears throat> over while you're alive will be included. Healy, knowing that this, that we're getting uncompetitive or we're not very competitive on the estate tax and that people are changing their residency and retirees are moving because they don't like this estate tax, has proposed a fix. And the latest proposal that just came out right around March 1st was that the first $3 million will not be subject to estate tax. So there'll be a $3 million figure and the tax will only be on amounts over $3 million. So that's not going to fix everyone's problem, but that's going to, I think they said about 75% of estates that are currently being taxed are between that $1 and $3 million and would not be subject to tax. Now this has to get through the legislature, so it's not a done deal, but that is what's on the table. So maybe there's some relief coming, basically. Okay. Jerry, any follow-up questions on that? No, no, that was pretty much my understanding. Should we make it, it should is. we make it bigger for you, Jerry? What do you think? I think last <laughs> summer when the legislature was looking at this, they were only thinking of going up to 2. So the governor's proposal is actually a little bit better than what was out there, but well, the 2 could be the fall they end up, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Okay, thank you. That is very informative. It's a very good show today. One more comment or question here. I did a, um, all the planning and the paperwork about, oh, I'm going to say 15 years ago now, and I had it reviewed maybe five or seven years ago. And I won't mention any names, but the original attorney retired, and so I contacted a local one in, in my hometown. But be that as it may, I'm not, I don't know that I'm happy with my second one. I assume you or someone in your firm I could make an appointment with, and they would review my documents and make updated, make any changes? Yes, we certainly get that quite often, that people have moved or their attorney has retired. And... It doesn't mean the entire plan needs to be redone, okay? it might You just might want to have it reviewed. You might want to make a few changes, and that can be done through amendments and that sort of thing. So that's a common thing, Jerry, and we'd be happy to have you in and talk to you about that. Okay, and one more question, and please don't think this the wrong way. By the way, Jerry, we're in no hurry. we got plenty of time here, okay? <laughs> if I called and made an appointment, would I meet with you or would I meet with some 
new legal person just out of law school. I think you could, we can make an exception for you, Jerry. What do you think? I might have an associate sit in with me because that is how you learn this business. But you would be meeting with, with me who's been doing it for a while. You might meet my colleague, Mike, who recently passed the bar and is just not this Mike, but a Mike in my office. And he's learning the ropes. And so he might sit in, but we certainly wouldn't hand you off to the guy that just got his degree. Yeah. Hey, Jerry, from my point of view, he doesn't look too, he looks kind of young, but he's old enough. If we're in our age group, we can say that. J- Jerry, I had a follow-up. You've, we've talked over the years. I don't know Jerry professionally, but great, great caller over the years and has got his act together. You, the, one of the things I wanted to just touch on, and probably because we have three or four minutes for a break, this might be a good time. <coughs> okay, wh- whoever, y- your sister is going to have a whole lot of work to do, e- even though you set it up correctly. And by the way, when that whatever trust you have get kicked in upon your demise, there's like a bunch of stuff, administration, tax-wise, and stuff. There's stuff that goes along with servicing and updating and making these trusts go forward. You want to take a moment? I went yeah, through this personally, sure. unfortunately, a couple of years ago, and I'm generally familiar with how this works, but oh my gosh, you got to get cost basis, you, the, the taxes that you that you have to pay on a tax return, the stuff that you have to rearrange to make the evaluations you have to get on your property. There, there's a humongous amount of stuff, even with probably not very complicated estates, that has to right. be done. I, administration is that the that's yeah? So that's like the second part of our practice, right? The first is the planning, yeah. and the second, which it's good that we do in house, is the administration. So that's an, another set of meetings I have, not with you, Jerry, but someday, many years from now with your sister and we serve as the quarterback on that mic to walk that named executor or yeah. named trustee yeah, they through can't do everything they need to do. There's they, no they way can. they, no, not happening. And it usually involves bringing in the CPA and having them involved because mm-hmm. there are tax matters. But that's a big part of it because even getting, you know how I think this call started with, will she transition from a power of attorney into executor? Even that requires some court paperwork and filings and that sort of stuff. It's not rocket science, but it is, you have to do it all the time to know what you have to yeah, do. Yeah, if you have a revocable trust that's going irrevocable upon your demise, there's stuff that yeah, needs to get there's done. A tax ID number that needs to be obtained. There's acceptances of successor trustees that need to be signed. Well, there's cost basis that Maybe That's get for estate tax and for basis. Jerry, that leads into another question that I have, and I can wait to after the break if we're short on time. Uh, we got about two minutes. Go for it. Okay. All these investment accounts and banking accounts are all TOD, as I said. <laughs> and the people tell me at those institutions that, yes, upon your death, we can automatically transfer that money to them. So if that's true, and this money just goes to the kids right away, and the house is in the trust so they can sell it the next day and the money goes to them. If all this paperwork and administrative stuff takes weeks or months to do, and then you have to pay Massachusetts their death tax, do the kids then have to pay it? Do you have to call up the kids and go, I know you got 100000 but you got to give Massachusetts 10000 <laughs> Usually what we would do, Jerry, is because there is that trust there with that house and those, the proceeds from that sale that are going to be generated, it's usually, in this case, the place where we would take the payment from back. for the taxes. It, it comes out of the estate. Yeah. And the estate tax needs to be paid nine months from date of death. And, and it, if that house is being sold, generally what we would do is set it up so it's paid directly to the Commonwealth upon 
on that sale. And that way the kids were not going out to all the different kids and trying to claw back money to pay the taxes. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. I'll give you a call during the week and set up an appointment because, like I said, I don't know that I'm real happy with my current firm. J- Jerry, right. it's been a pleasure calling Thanks, Jerry. Your time. Oh. By the way, John from Marshfield, hang on. We're going to go to a break. We promise we're going to talk to you for as long as it takes. This is Mike McNamara. If you're looking for a financial advisor, start by asking him or her three questions. Number one, are you a certified financial planner practitioner? Number two, are you legally held to a fiduciary standard of care for your clients? And number three, do you only give financial advice and not sell investment products? These are all simple yes-no questions. If he or she doesn't answer yes quickly and starts talking, that's a no, and it's time to move on to another advisor. We're back. My name is Mike McNamara. This is McNamara on Money. The subject is legal stuff today. That's as technical as I'm going to get. My special guest is attorney Brian Fecto from Delaney and Muncie in Plymouth. Phone number quick, just in case. Yes, Mike, 508-746-2200. And Tasha, too shy about giving us a question, but apparently John from Marshfield is not. Good morning, John. How are you today? Hi, good morning. Good morning. Very good. I have a question about the estate tax. Sure. Yeah, I know you guys mentioned it, but we came really close to getting relief last year. The governor and the Senate and the House agreed it should be done, and it got messed up. Now we have a Democratic governor who's got this plan that, as I understand it, will basically exclude $182,000 from any estate tax that is due, regardless of the size of your estate. So the question I have is, assuming you were thinking about setting up a trust, do you think it's a smart idea to wait four months? Because 90% of the people, 100% of the people who think about doing it are going to be impacted. And this would determine, in my opinion, tell me if I'm wrong, whether I, A, even need a trust, and B, if just simply having a trust in my house would take care of pretty much any estate under $5 million. That, By the way, that's a good question. You doing anything for the next 30 minutes or what? <laughs> Go for it, Brian. <laughs> that is a good question, John. Yes, so that, that 182000 figure that was in her proposal, that's a credit against a tax, and that's the tax that would be due on $3 million. So that's a technical way for saying what I lied in that the first $3 million would not be taxable. So you're right. We are at a strange time right now where it would, it's uh, if you're making a decision as to whether you want to do a trust that has tax features, and usually that's a married couple trying to make sure that they're using both of their current million-dollar exemptions. But if you've got that estate between $1 and $3 million, you may, and you're feeling pretty healthy, you may want to he- hold off and see what happens between now and July 31st when the legislature adjourns. Last year, as they didn't get this done, I think something's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to be Governor Healy's a proposal or if it's going to be Frankenstein down to something less. But it's definitely something to take into account. And if, if you're only doing a trust for tax reasons, you may want to hold off until you get some better visibility on where we're going in this commonwealth. Yeah, yeah John, that is a terrific question. As an example, and you probably know this because you sound pretty plugged in, but so theoretically, you can set up trust for a million dollars and put a million dollar home in it and protect it from a Massachusetts estate tax. You probably know that. So by the way, if you did that, okay, and you're sitting there, by the way, I did that two years ago. You did that. You're sitting there saying, okay, if they increased it, that from $1 million to $3 million, I didn't need to have done that trust three years ago. If they drop it from $1 million to $500,000, i am feeling better. So, yeah, you don't know the future. You have to act in the now. But that's a great question with what's going on, politically speaking. So, wow. yeah, definitely. And, and, and in my opinion, tell me if I'm wrong. I think the $64,000 thing here is, we el- in all likelihood, we eliminate the cliff. 
which for most people, that is like the whole ball game. Because whether we go to two million or three million, if it's real money and it's up, what's above that, look, as a taxpayer, I don't mind paying some money after I die. That doesn't bother me. What bothers me is spending a quarter million dollars when I die, as opposed to sending. Seventy thousand, big deal, right? Because right now, if you have a two and a half billion dollar estate, you're looking at about a hundred and forty thousand in Massachusetts estate taxes, right? And if right. in the future, if you have a three and a half million dollar estate, and they're only taxing five hundred, there's only you're only paying tax on five hundred of that instead of three point five. It's going to be right. a much more manageable number. So even if you do still have a taxable estate, it's going to be less of a burden. And more importantly, we won't be playing this cliff game. Like like you said, where, oh, my God, I need to get rid of $15,000 because right. it's going to trigger a $35,000 tax bill. That will go away. Yes. You'll either owe a little bit more or a little bit less at the margin. You won't be, like, completely screwed the way you are under the law now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Do you really feel about that, John? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because no, I, it's always – yeah, it's been tough because we've I've recommended to people, hey, why don't you start doing some annual exclusion gifting? You can right now you can do seventeen thousand per person per year. You've got kids, you've got grandkids. Let's get that estate that's a million fifty thousand down to nine hundred ninety nine. And oftentimes people say, Yeah, I know that's a, there's a tax thing. I really don't feel like doing the gifting right now. I might need the money. I'm not sure I want to give that money to yeah, my gr- kids right now. Point. And point. so right now I hate for people to drive their decision-making solely on taxes. So you take away that cliff and you give people... People aren't doing things they don't want to do for tax minimization. That's an excellent point. In my world, in the investment world, people are driven by taxes. That's the tail that wags the dog, as far as I'm concerned. Wait a minute, I had a $100,000 capital gain last year. Congratulations. So it really depends. John, you have a great call. Do you have any other questions for us? Yeah, I have one other question, and this is... I agree that, like, most people should have at least the will, in many cases of trust. And I know this is probably counter to what you do for a living, but... (laughs) (laughs) We can live with it. It's fine. fine. Are there a number of people who not only don't need a will, but it actually just might complicate their lives? For example, if you had a half-million-dollar estate, Mm -hmm. 99% of it's in a brokerage account with proper beneficiaries, you don't have much to your name that wouldn't go to Goodwill or to the junk, and your kids can deal the remains, and the car is properly titled. So you Mm -hmm. basically have a non-probatable estate. To me, in that case, a will just complicates it. In other words, you might have made a mistake in that will that doesn't agree with the beneficiaries, and now you've created (laughs) a problem that didn't exist. Good point. Right. Yeah, John, you're correct. If the will is contrary to the beneficiary designations, the benef- legally the beneficiary designations will control. Okay, so if I've left my IRA to my brother, but my will says everything to my daughter, my brother is going to get that IRA and my daughter can waive that will everywhere. It's not going to change that. But you're right. It may lead to some bad blood because they said, yeah, it must, this must be screwed up. So right. the only time to definitely do a will would be a situation. Here's a reason to do there a There are people who, who don't need wills. Yeah, absolutely. There how, are. How many and what percentage? We can argue about that. But absolutely. I can think of one or two cases, John, though, where people have done that and thought everything was tied up and some asset turns up somewhere abandoned property shows up and it's a probate asset that the decedent did not think he had 
and the will, then you have to do a probate and it's a little bit easier if you have a will. Now, if you don't have a will, your assets can, it's not that your assets then go to the state or something like that. It's just that there are what's called the laws of intestacy, which will control who gets what. And sometimes those can be a little screwy and counter to what the person may have wanted to do. But, but you're right. There, there are cases where people do overcomplicate their life. And I think I mentioned in the first hour, I try to keep things simple because if people don't understand what they've done or they've got too much complexity for a simple set of problems, it's made things worse. So I'm with you on that, John. Yeah, actually, I've come across a real life example where someone with proper planning did a will years ago and changed what they wanted to do and handled the beneficiaries properly and did a new will. But the person who got shortchanged on the new will had the original will. Okay. Now all of a sudden, like it's very cut and dry. The rules of beneficiaries supersede anything written in a will, right? Easy. Except someone's got their hand on a will that doesn't reflect what the person wanted to do, which is what the beneficiary is. Right. And if that person wants to create a problem, they can turn around and say, hey, John put duress on that person to change the will to help him and hurt me, right? This is another reason not to have your old wills floating out there in the hands of other people. And that's people sometimes say, I'm going to send my whole will to my kids. And I say, are you sure you want to do that? Because you might change that thing. And then an old will is going to be out there that says something different. And then you've got a problem that you're talking about, John. Yeah, John, John, by the way, from my point of view, your very good question about biases. Any successful, accomplished attorney or financial advisor, uh, if they don't need financial advice or if they don't need a will will say smile congratulations and have a nice day right. and, and move on with things so it's th- there are certainly bad apples in everybody's business but again if you're good at what you do and you run a good professional business you give people the right advice and whether you get paid for it or not that's not material right away yeah that's right there certainly are enough people out there that need our help so if there's someone that doesn't i'm not <laughs> going to impose myself yeah, what, what's, into what's the point yeah. any other questions john you've been great by the way any other questions for us no, and by the way, I agree with you 100%. I think most good attorneys would say, here's your options. What do you think you should do? So, I, yeah, I didn't mean to imply anything oh, like yeah, that. No. Yeah, but you yeah. raised a great point, is my point of view. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Hey, it's been real fun. Are, yeah, same here. All right, call any time, okay? Okay, take care. <laughs> All right, right. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Great call, huh? Yeah, two, couple, three good calls now. It, it's better to have calls that have the questions and the problems so that people can understand what they're doing. You want right. to see if we can give it a whirl for another one here or what? Huh? Sure, why not? 781-837-4900. We're talking about legal stuff. So if you have money or and or a home and you're worried about hanging on to it now or making sure it gets to the right folks after you're not here, this is your special day. 781-837-4900. All righty. We only have about 12 or 13 minutes here. What sure. would you like to do next? Maybe we should talk a little bit about who is the right person to pick ah, to okay. take on all these different roles, oh, duties yeah. we've been talking oh, today. yeah. So we talked about the power of attorney, right, which is someone who is managing your financial affairs during your lifetime when you need help with that. 
we've talked about a personal representative or executor who would be settling your estate. Along with that may be what's known as a successor trustee, someone who steps in and deals with trust matters after you're gone. So what, when people come to me and say, who do I pick? Here, here's where I start. First of all, obviously, it's got to be someone that you trust implicitly because these powers, these are very powerful documents and powerful positions. So you better pick someone you trust. The next thing is to pick someone who has financial, some financial acumen, or at least knows what they don't know and knows when to get help. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Can you write that down? Okay. And so you don't have to be a CPA. You don't have to be an attorney or a financial advisor, but you should know- Reasonably intelligent Reasonably person. intelligent, yeah. and that this person has their own financial house in order. I think that's, those two things would be very helpful. And then go from there. But it looks like we have another call. I'm going I'm to politely interrupt you here. I believe it's Vaughn or Van? Uh, Van. Van from Middleborough. Good morning, Van. How are you today? Good morning. I'm doing well. All right. How can we help you? Thank you. Thank you. I had a discussion on the tax incentive for estates, and it was really informative about the upcoming potential changes in the law. But the thing that I hear a lot on ads on radio or whatever are is the nursing home as a driver for creating an estate. That's a real hot button. Indeed. Yes, indeed. Thanks for the call. This is great. Okay, go for it. Do you want me to Uh, touch on it, Vaughn, or do you have something further? Yeah, it's pronounced Van. Oh, I'm sorry, Um, Van. Yeah, no problem. Just if you could give uh, some considerations as far as uh, uh, that asset value, is it over or under certain limits, any other criteria that okay. would go into that. So decision. you just kind of want some generic comments on that subject. You don't have a specific question in no. mind. Is that correct? Okay, well, hang with correct. us, by the way, and go for okay, it. Okay, sure. So estate taxes is a problem of if you have a large estate being taxed. The other concern that a lot of people have is if I get towards the end of life, am I going to end up spending all my assets on a, a nursing home stay? And so this th- is a biggie, folks. This is a biggie. It's going to be hard to do in 10 minutes, but let me just try to touch on some of the main points. The first is that your typical Medicare or health insurance, while it will pay for a rehabilitative stay in a nursing home, it is not going to pay for long term institutional care. Okay, so if you are going into a nursing home with dementia and you're going to be in there for the duration, at some point, your typical medical insurance is going to shut off. Okay, and in the United States and Massachusetts, the default is that you are a private payer for that care. And then what is it, about $134,000 a year in Massachusetts? I would say a nursing home could be up to $15,000 a month, so that's even more than that. Yeah, Um, figure $120,000, $160,000 a year, folks. And assisted living might be a lot less if you don't need full medical care and you can go to an assisted living. That might be half of that. Scary numbers and lots to worry about. But numbers. And there is a government program that will pay for that type of care, but it is means tested. So unlike Medicare, which everyone has, this is called Medicaid and it's called Mass Health in Massachusetts. And it, you only get that if you're, poor. if you're poor. So the real default position is you spend all your money and then when you've run out of money, Mass Health will pay for your care. So what people try to do, and there's a lot of information out there about this, what people will try to do is to move assets out of their name legally into either their children's name or into certain type of trust, a different type of trust than what we've talked about, not a revocable trust, but some type of irrevocable trust vehicle. And the idea there is to position themselves so that should they need to go into a nursing home 
and, and they have to apply for MassHealth or Medicaid, their assets will appear to be at the level where they would qualify. So this obviously cannot be done the night before you go to the nursing home, because if it was, everyone would do that and everyone would be on mass health and the system's not really set up for that. So it has to be done five years in advance and there's a lot more to it. That was a 30,000 foot overview, but I, I hope that yeah. was somewhat helpful. Yeah, Van, yeah. thank you for that. We're not kissing your goodbye here. Thank you. Yeah, don't leave yet. This is a okay. big issue, and people make really dumb legal mistakes about this if they don't consult with professionals. Okay, so you want to talk about, about what are the few things available to folks that, that might solve this? And again, we've just got a few minutes, but maybe we can get to some of right. them. A few things, depending. So the first thing I see is if you have $5 million in assets, I don't think that you're first, when you look at this, you should be talking with someone like Mike or a financial advisor about long-term care insurance and other options, or consider yourself self-insured at those wealth levels. Yeah, if you have enough so, money that you yeah. can think you can pay for it, even though you wouldn't like it, that's fine. This planning yeah. isn't for everybody. Look at this planning for someone that has a, a home and maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars, and yep. that's their net worth. That's when this makes sense. Those are the folks that are in the most okay. need. If you've got plenty of money to pay for it, that's not most people find. Right. By the way, if you have plenty of money, you usually can afford the insurance, which is very high. We're talking five, six, seven thousand dollars on average for some kind of a single policy. Who has that kind of money? Not a lot of percent. Yeah. So, Van, this is a really good call. Yeah. So, what can you do? Yeah. So, you'll see people use a situation where they might go ahead and deed that house to the children. Um, at some point, and they might retain a life estate, which can protect and give them the right to reside in that house and protect them to some extent from problems happening in the children's lives okay, after so, that gift so is made. So life estate is one issue. So a deed with life estate, and the other thing we but, see but often- the kids own the house. And they, they own the house, there, right? They own the house, and but you've retained the right to stay there, so the kids can't decide to throw you out, okay. um, nor could their creditors necessarily, or, or okay. ex-spouse Good. or something like that. Good. The other more common use is an irrevocable trust. So this would be a situation where you deed over your house or transfer over your assets into an irrevocable trust where you no longer have full access to those assets. Let me rephrase. You gave your house away. Effectively. You've given the asset away. You've put it under the control of a separate trustee, maybe a child. You don't own it anymore. And it's irrevocable. So remember that too. So it's, it can be hard to undo this. But you, you do that in advance. And it's always hard because no one knows when these things are going to happen. But you do that at least five years in advance. And should you need to go into a nursing home when you apply for mass health, your asset levels are low enough that you would qualify. And so what you're really doing, more so than protecting yourself, is you're protecting your children's inheritance, okay? Because if, if, there, is a, if there is a spouse who is still able to live in the house, the Commonwealth is not going to require the spouse to get out of the house and sell it to pay for care. So there's some protections in place for spouse. There's really not many protections in place for the inheritance. There's no nothing in the law that says everyone should be able to leave an inheritance and we're going to pay for their care. Van, so. do you have any questions so far? We've got a couple other things, but any questions? No, it's, uh, it's really insightful okay. information. All right, well, let me shoot this down on that for a moment or two then. Sure. Okay, so, so by the way, under the heading of Sometimes you solve one problem and create another. Okay, let me give you specific stories that I've seen happen a number of times over my life. So you have a, a single person who wants to preserve the value of their home. They have a few thousand or hundred thousand of other assets, N not a ton of money, but they've got their house and they want their three kids to, to own the house. They want to leave their legacy to the children, okay? And they put this house into that 
irrevocable trust. And yeah, they can live there and yeah, they don't own it and whatever. You can specify how that works. But so here's the story. Okay, if somewhere down the line that person didn't have a lot of money to begin with, okay, needs to access the equity in their home, they can't do that if it's inside of an irrevocable trust. Right. I have seen a number of folks over the years put their home into a, an irrevocable trust, run out of assets, and not be able to go to their home and sell it and get the money or do an equity line. So if you're going to give away your home, you better be able to know financially if you can afford to do that. Because it's sad how many folks have run out of money. Oh, the house is safe, but they're not living their life in retirement anywhere near because of stuff that they didn't plan on. It, you have to be really careful if you do that. That's all. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's my. You've, it, your responses have changed the direction that I was leaning in. Leaning towards. Go see an attorney or, right. or a good financial planner and talk about yeah, it. Yeah, there's definitely no... There's no perfect solution right. to anything. And just because no. your brother-in-law did it doesn't mean that it's what you need. So it really should be discussed with an attorney. Absolutely. Yeah. Everyone's situation is different. Hey, Van, thank you so much for the call. We appreciate that. Okay? All right. Thank you. Have a good day. And listen, son of a gun, are we busy here? We didn't even we finish the today. outline That's here. That's okay. Let's go to Joanne in Duxbury. Good morning, Joanne. How are you today? Okay. I just have a question on the irrevocable trust. Sure. Uh, after five years, if you decide to sell your house, can you do that? So usually on an irrevocable trust, if you sell the house, you that's okay. You can sell the house and the irrevocable trust can take that money and buy another house. Typically how those work, though, is when you sell the house after the five years, that money has to stay in trust. It's not coming back to you. Did that answer your does question, or does that raise mm-hmm. a question? I wanted to find out if, say, you want you decide to sell your house and want to buy another house, another state. Yep. Can you do it? But it sounds like yes. You can't. No, no, the you answer is yes, can. you can. Trust would sell the house, and the trust would buy the new one. Yeah, but okay. Joanne, let me give you an example though. So you sell your six hundred thousand dollar house and buy a four hundred thousand dollar condo. I'm making this up. Two hundred thousand dollars that's left in the trust. So ask me if you can have that money. <laughs> Can I have that money? No. No. Okay. okay. Because you gave it away. Okay. It's in the trust. Okay. And so I'm not saying that's a good idea or a bad idea. I am saying that people have to understand if you're going to give away an asset and that's really what you're doing. Okay. You need to understand all the risk, understand all the pluses and minuses, and then you make your bet. But if you do that without being informed, if you make an unreasoned decision without the right information, that could come back and haunt you. And I've seen enough of that. And I'm sure Brian has in his life. You just have to be careful about that. Not bad-mouthing irrevocable trusts. I am saying they don't work for everybody. D- does that provoke some more questions from you, Joanne? Is that, are we okay it so does far? a little bit because after seeing my mother-in-law having, and father-in-law having to sell the house and then living in the nursing home and they didn't get good care when they were paying for yeah, it. Yeah, um, yeah. I, we did the irrevocable trust. Yep. We, I understood that we could sell the house and buy another one with the sale of the house. Yeah, you can. That's correct. I know that I don't get to cut the other money. Yeah, good. I I guess my other question is, where we gave it to the children, when we wanted to change one of the children's setup, they said we could. I'm, I'm... 
bestowed. Yes, often, bestowed. oftentimes within the irrevocable trust, certain powers of appointment, which is a technical term, okay. can be reserved. So they're, even though it's irrevocable, sometimes you do have the right to, to make some changes to that document, especially to the ultimate disposition of the assets. And there might be some rules built into that trust to begin with that allow for situations to right. happen and get resolved. What, what cannot be in there is any way for you to get the money back. Because if you can get the money back out of the trust, then that's what, that's what Mass Health wants to see you do before you come to them for to pay for care. Yeah. One more question was if we oh, I lost the question. Sorry. I, uh, if you wanted to do a reverse mortgage on it, are you still allowed to do a reverse mm, mortgage? With oh it? no, you can't get it, and that's a big problem. That's yeah. a big problem. Okay. okay, we All didn't right. know that when we did. So uh, yeah, you, go you, talk, you go ask the attorney, but the answer is, Brian, Brian yeah, I don't, you, you know don't know, a lot, but I believe the answer on no, that one. You would've... can't do a reverse mortgage right. on a home that's in an irrevocable right. trust. They'll laugh at you. Yep. Okay, maybe there's an exception, but that's generally been my experience. Joanne, great call, perfect timing. We have Thank to go. You. By the way, if you have any follow-up questions, Brian's going to give his number at the close of the show. He'd be happy to do that without a charge if you got a quick call or whatever. Okay. All right, thank you. Okay. All right, Brian. All right. It's been great being number, here, Mike. Thank email, you. Email, website. Go for it. Sure. 508-746-2200, delaney-muncie.com. You'll find us online and uh, happy to answer any questions anyone may have. And uh, thanks, Mike, for having me. All right. Thank you for being here. Mike McNamara signing off. Folks, have a great day.